Welcome to Living Proof, the podcast series of the University at Buffalo School of Social Work at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. We're glad you could join us today. The series Living Proof examines social work research and practice that makes a difference in people's lives. I'm your host, Adjua Robinson, and I'd like to take a moment to address you, our regular listeners. We know you have enjoyed the Living Proof podcast, as evidenced by the more than 150,000 downloads to date. Thanks to all of you. We'd like to know what value you may have found in the podcast. We'd like to hear from all of you, practitioners, researchers, students, but especially our listeners who are social work educators. How are you using the podcast in your classrooms? Just go to our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu forward slash podcast and click on the Contact Us tab. Again, thanks for listening, and we look forward to hearing from you. Microfinance, offered through community-based nonprofit organizations, provides access to loans for families who have no access. Non-governmental organizations provided microcredit has been recognized as one anti-poverty tool and a conduit for financial assistance and capacity building. Indeed, findings from a 14-year longitudinal study by the World Bank found that 40% of the entire reduction of poverty in rural Bangladesh was directly attributed to microfinance. Yet a number of high-profile cases have brought criticism and concern regarding the for-profit microfinance industry in India. These cases of profit-making appear to be unethical or exploitive and triggered national concern in India regarding the rapid growth of the sector and issues of underpayment, over-indebtedness, rigid repayment schedules, and little regulation of microfinance providers. Today's guests, Drs. Jill Whitmer-Singha and Rebecca Thomas, discuss their research among nonprofits in India. They present findings from a case study of one program in Kolkata, India, examining whether smaller, nonprofit, community-based microcredit loan programs are qualitatively and quantitatively different than their for-profit and often larger microfinance counterparts. Their study highlights the array of complementary services that microloan clients use or have access to and the benefits of microcredit for women that may help bridge the economic divide between the haves and have-nots in a shifting global landscape. Dr. Singha is an assistant professor at Rutgers University's School of Social Work where she studies the relationship between public sector funding and non-governmental organizations in social service provision, with a special interest in faith-based and religious organizations, and the growth and management of the nonprofit sector and its role in providing social services. Dr. Thomas is an associate professor and chair of the Policy Practice Concentration at the University of Connecticut School of Social Work. Her specializations include planning and program development and evaluation, microcredit and microfinance, social inclusion, international development, and poverty reduction in the global context. Dr. Kathleen Cost, 
Associate Professor at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work, spoke with Drs. Singha and Thomas by telephone. I'm Dr. Kathleen Koss from the University of Buffalo School of Social Work. Here with me to talk about microcredit and their work in India are Dr. Rebecca Thomas and Dr. Jill Sinha. Thanks so much for joining me today. I appreciate this. I was wondering if we could start with you sharing a little bit about what your work is in India with microcredit. Good morning. I'm Jill Sinha and um Pleased to be here on the podcast with my colleague, Rebecca Thomas. Dr. Thomas is an, originally from India, which really has helped a tremendous amount in terms of, at least for myself, beginning to conduct research in a very, very different cultural setting and context. We have the opportunity to work with a nonprofit organization who started up a microcredit loan program. This is an organization that has about 30 years of experience in the community, and they've been providing a number of other services. They have a large school for children, a private school, and they do have a number of children who live with them, so two small orphanages. Um, They've recently started a health clinic because very few persons are willing to work in the neighborhood with people who are HIV positive, and so they have a health clinic now, but particularly to work with people who are HIV positive. They also have uh, drug and alcohol counseling and treatment centers, so fairly extensive array of services and an established organization. They started a microcredit program uh, in 2008, and so we've been working with them just to evaluate some of the outcomes of that program. I hadn't realized that, the scope of the services. Why did they choose to start the microcredit work? I think they've done a considerable amount of work working with women, providing multiple sort of services in terms of teaching them trade, along with basic literacy classes, and it just seems like a natural fit to, after the completion of training, to be engaged in some profit-making or income generation schemes, and certainly working as an NGO to generate income through a microcredit uh, format seemed like a natural segue in this process. I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit more about what microcredit is. I know it's been in the news quite a bit with Eunice and all of the sort of controversy that's been going on with him in the Grameen Bank in in India. If you could say a little bit more about what microcredit is and maybe how it works with these women in this NGO. Sure, I could take a first crack at it. The way we sort of see microcredit is that it's providing small loans for income generating activities to people living in poverty, especially in developing countries. It's a means of self-employment enterprise that generates income. It's working with small loans for people that don't have capital to borrow against, and with with this idea that uh, poor people have the capacity to have great ideas, have the capacity to borrow, and have the capacity to pay back, except that they don't have bank structures from which they can borrow, so they become subject to exploitation by loan sharks or any other mechanisms, and even increasingly for profits that see microcredit as a good strategy for benefiting too. And so because of the high return rates, 
So that's what microcredit is. Quite different from microfinance. Microfinance is a series of other support services that go in addition to the small loans borrowed by, by primarily women in this context. Jill, you want to sort of take off from there, from how you sort of envision microcredit? One of the criticisms Rebecca mentioned concerned that for institutions, financial industry that wants to make a credit, um, it's been shocking to realize that very, very persons in extreme poverty, I think in our paper we quote, you know, living under one to two dollars a day. It's very difficult for us in this country to imagine what that means. The repayment rates have consistently, since the Grameen Bank, obviously one of the earliest and longest models, repayment rates are fairly high, which makes it attractive to investors but at what cost, as Rebecca mentioned. And so one of the criticisms is that as microcredit moves into becoming more of a for-profit model with larger institutions interested in offering some type of very small loan to people who don't have other access to other types of formal credit, there's a real concern that where's advocacy or where's the watchdog that's protecting and not charging exorbitant interest rates on these small loans. And interest rates do appear to be very high, partly because they repay in weekly or monthly. The times of repayment are very short periods of time, and they would pay incremental amounts back, which makes it possible. But So that's definitely the largest criticism at this point. I think one of the strengths or some of the strengths of microcredit, again, repeating a little bit of what Rebecca said, the first is that it provides a form of credit to persons who have very few other types of they don't have any other type of legal or formal access to credit, and so that makes them very vulnerable to borrowing from persons who are loan sharks where there's very little control or monitoring or protection. So microcredit certainly has that as a strength, and we really argue or we, we really look at what is the venue or the organization that's providing the microcredit and what's the relationship to the loan recipient. And so our sense is that when it's not a for-profit model, but it's rather provided through an NGO or a nonprofit organization, and obviously size of the program is also very important. So that but when there is opportunity for there to be a relationship between the person who is managing the program and the loan recipients, there's also an opportunity there for if an organization has other services to then supplement the loan, giving money to start something new, but they can supplement it with other types of services. So in the example that we look at, the portion, about 60% of the families who had received a loan also were using a number of other services that the nonprofit offered, in particular education for their children, sometimes informal education, sometimes formal education, but still it's a type of education that many families, depending on their income level, would not be able to provide even informal education um, for their children, the cost. They would not be able to sustain the cost of that. So um, that's definitely one of the biggest benefits that we see that's, again, social networking and the role of then the nonprofit organization to act in some form as a collective or a place where people have access not only to services but also activities to begin to advocate for themselves and begin to organize as a community around specific needs. Thank you. I was just thinking as you were sharing that information about the supports of the nonprofit for these women who are now really, in a sense, working with the microcredit assistance. And just 
the sort of the impact that that would have, not in addition to the financial resources that are available to them, as you say, with education, but also other sorts of challenges that might be met because now they may be either outside of the home or away from their children. Now, have there been issues like that that have come up? I'm just thinking, as you were saying, sort of the social relations, the context of the family and how that might be impacted by by these additional resources. When you're poor, you're figuring out multiple ways in which to earn income. So women have always worked both inside and outside the home trying to generate a source of income for themselves and for their families. Um, be it domestic work in households, be it running errands, being sort of selling um, some things from the farm, bringing from rural area into the city. So, I mean, women have in lots of ways both managed household chores and responsibilities along with uh, figuring out both formal and informal mechanisms of generating income. I think if you if you sort of envision an environment where people are eking out an existence for less than a dollar a day to support themselves and for their families, you have to quickly understand that women are working constantly. But in the context of microcredit, I, I think it provides an environment because the way microcredit programs are often structured, it's women collectively in a group of five or six that have some sort of way of thinking through a business plan, have a support system where they collectively meet once a week or twice in a month to report back and to exchange to give back what it is that they have borrowed in small portions. And in, and in some cases, some people do a, a savings program in this process itself. Yes, there has been critique about um, has there been, are women feeling far more pressured. I think that there is some truth to that, but I don't believe that it is radically any different from uh, just sort of everyday living of figuring out how it is that they are going to generate income for themselves and for their families. They have figured out a mechanism in which to work with their families, with a spouse, be it with their sons, be it with other women in their household, or even with their children, where they are sort of helping to produce, to sell something outside their homes or quite close to their homes where they're juggling both household responsibilities along with business enterprise. The reason why I asked the question actually is because there's been some anecdotal evidence of the use of uh, microcredit in Africa where the credit has been given to the women and lots of support to them and the children. And it's changed the dynamic with their husbands, with the men in their lives. And we're just now, it's a, it's a project that I've been involved in, but we're just now hearing that some of the women have dropped out or disappeared or been found dead 
And uh, there's been some concern on our part about maybe some risks. Say maybe we need to uh, work a little bit with the, the men because the relationship within the family has changed because of the power differential that's now occurred between the husband and wife. I guess that's why I, I asked the question. Uh, anytime there's resources brought into the family and only one partner is sort of targeted for those resources, certainly can change the, the uh, environment in the family, the context of those power relations. So so that's why I asked the question. And I, so I'm glad to hear that that's not <laughs> something that that you're finding anyway. And we're just beginning to to take notice of it because we hadn't expected it. That's why I ask. But I also wonder if you could say a little bit more about outcomes for the children in the introduction of additional resources now within the family. Unfortunately, we don't have as much follow-up data as what we would like. We've started a process of doing a much more in-depth interview process with families that have received a loan for at least a year, and we do have questions about how are they investing or, you know, how much additional income really are they seeing and what are the ways that they invest in it. And so one of the questions specifically is about education or tuition or books pertaining to children. But we don't, I don't think that we can report on that data at this point unless to be anecdotal. Um, And I did want to follow up a little bit to your comment and Certainly, we're aware of gender differences and the dynamics of changing income or power structure. And I'm just, again, thinking that it's really true that in the two, there are two very different sites where the loans have been dispersed, or two different communities. And the two communities, in a way, the social dynamics between the women who are named as the loan recipient is different. And our program manager talked a little bit about those differences. Unfortunately, he has the experience in the community then, I think, to really contextualize the way that he works with those two different groups. In both of those communities, as Rebecca said, the women have been, the businesses very much are seen as family businesses. And even in the one site, it's actually, women have been working as prostitutes. And it was shocking to me to find out that a woman could be a prostitute, but still be married to one spouse and to have children and to maintain her home. Again, because of the poverty that the family is living in, every source of income is used. So those women tended to, they tend to have more ownership of their businesses. If they started a startup business, rather than really being in the first community, in the other community, there's been a very long-term family business model. And so even though it's the woman who receives the loan, she very much is using that, typically she's reinvesting or helping to expand or support an existing family business. And so it's very interesting. So they're, they're different, they're very different contexts. And the, I've tried to, in a, in a culturally sensitive way, just to, to ascertain, you know, who's making most of the decisions or how much of a difference is it making because the woman's name is on the loan, that she literally receives the loan and that she goes to the meetings every week and she does the repayment. So is that supporting her role as a, as a business partner or is it continuing a relationship that had already existed in that community? And, I, and again, it's something that we have some items on the interview, but we don't have that data yet. So it'll be interesting to see if there's differences between the two sites and how that does compare to other literature and other areas. And I, I also am just wondering, because this is such an urban context, I don't know where, where your research was, but I do wonder if a rural context or a place where women had fewer or maybe had less mobility or less visibility outside of the home, whether that's different because of our area being so urban. 
the area that I'm referring to, uh, actually there's two of them in, in Africa, both of them are uh, relatively remote in terms of certainly not urban. Larger villages, but not urban. But that's an important point in terms of visibility. Um, so I, I appreciate that. I'm wondering, too, where do you see your work going? What's some of your next steps in this? My work has primarily been focusing on addressing those social issues through oh, addressing the issue of poverty to figuring out ways, uh, either educating or creating an environment where people can find employment and and gain livable wage. Here in the United States, my work has been primarily looking at issues related to TANF and poverty reduction and creation of social capital in that context itself. Um, as, I, as more and more of my work has been focusing on international related issues and teaching international development and sort of watching closely the Millennial Development Goals or the Copenhagen Commitments, my interest is far more sort of leading in the area of international social work and poverty reduction in the global context, given sort of how small our, our world is, is becoming. So for me, um, I'd like to sort of be involved in the larger movement of poverty reduction to create more sustainable economies, to think about microcredit, microfinance as just one of the multiple strategies of intervention, but that recognizing microcredit is operating out of a system of, of informal economies and somehow that policies need to change where there is much more of a broader safety net for people in poverty. So looking at sort of, you know, policy structure that would create an environment for fair and equal education, for reducing the gender biases, for creating an environment where there is increased literacy both for children and for adults. And within the context of really operating from this premise that if people have the resources to live safely, to um, engage in an enterprise where they can earn money and provide for their families, then we will have a much more peaceable poverty reduction environment. So, so sort of that's my big frame, working me maybe with NGOs, sort of looking in partnerships with other, other organizations that have similar goals and supporting enterprises like these that uh, either through technical assistance, um, you know, or some ways of providing um, resources that could make a fair, much more equitable environment. Jill, I wondered if you could uh, speak as well about where you expect this work in India to go and what may be some next steps. You mentioned some comparisons between the two sites, and I wondered if you and Rebecca would be expanding some of that work. I definitely think one of our the short-term vision would be just to be able to expand, looking not only at this one site, but really, I'm just really curious about this question about are there significant differences about when a loan is provided through a community-based organization, that relational aspect and the social networking that's available and access to supplemental services, and how significant is that as opposed to somebody who, who really is just getting money and who's repaying it, even though the model of microcredit, the group model, aims to support at least 
the small group support within usually groups of four, maybe as large as eight or ten individuals who one person has a loan and not until they pay back a certain amount to other individuals in the group. And so it's supposed to be creating a structure and network where those individuals will support one another. And I think there's extremely wide variation of how well that group system works and how rigid an organization is enforcing that group structure. Certainly those are some of the dynamics that are very interesting in the organization that we work with. Some places people are trust one another a bit more. The groups work better, but when there's not a lot of trust there to begin with, people will sign on as a group because they have to, but it doesn't mean that those types of relationships really are becoming mutually supporting. And you had asked about things like childcare or helping one another with inventory or business. I don't really think that's happening in our situation. But I'm very curious again about the social networking piece and how important that is to loan recipients and the role of then a larger critical piece. So not only comparing a nonprofit model or a community-based model where there are other supplemental services that are offered and a place to develop those relationships and social capital versus money only kind of model. But I'm also curious from a larger standpoint or structure, again, as Rebecca said, where's the role for advocacy? And there's some very, um, we met an individual who is she's from India. She was here for a conference, but she was, she was highly critical, concerns her very much that it is actually the nonprofit organizations that are controlling the money rather than more of a social movement type approach, which would be self-advocacy by the poorest of the poor. So she was very highly critical of any type of intermediary or middle person who's actually financing the loans and controlling the loans and the payback system. She felt that it's repressive. Um, and that would be the larger criticism, I think, with for-profit, the for-profit microfinance industry in India. So that would be a larger, um, just getting at ways that how do we differentiate between different venues and what are the different benefits or criticisms that go along with each of them. I realize that our listeners may not uh, really be aware of the uh, nuances, the context of the two sites that you have. And my understanding is is they're both in Kolkata. And I wondered if you could say a little bit more about about the two sites and maybe the groups of women, families that are involved in and how, how they might be different or the same. Okay, well, maybe I could sort of start with the descriptive and then um, and then maybe have Jill sort of add more to that descriptive. I grew up in Calcutta and we spelled it as C-A-L-C-U-T-T-A and now that's changed to Kolikota. It's one of the sites is called the New Market Area and then you have to sort of reframe what does New Market mean because it's a market that's been there through the British rule. And so it's really an old, old market. But uh, what surprised me, and we've always shopped there as kids, but what really surprised me was behind the new market in very prime location is an enormous, enormous slum structure or informal housing that has been erected. And the government has actually been trying to reclaim that space, but obviously to no avail. So that's really the first location. It's in prime property, access to local shopping areas, and uh, including vegetables. And so it's a natural venue for people where they have business plans to be engaged in buying and selling of whatever products. And so that's one group. The second group is in Lokirmad area, 
And that's an area that I'm not familiar with in terms of the geographical location, but it's an area where it's very established uh, neighborhoods. And if you drive past it, it could be very similar to any Bengali neighborhood. And again, it's very a uh, geographical space. If you sort of drive through, it's sort of housing that's established, uh, brick and mortar. People are dressed uh, as would be any Bengali uh, would be dressed in a sari that's sort of uh, made out of cotton woven thread. People are wearing pala and shaka, which is sort of the symbol of marriage with the sindhu, with the red sign of marriage. And so one would think it would be a very established, long, old neighborhood that has local traditions. So that's sort of the geographical space that maybe Jill might want to talk about the two different groups. Just briefly, so in New Market, which is really the old, old market, I have a, a note, I'm just reading very quickly a note from the program manager who said there are families that immigrated to Calcutta probably 60 to 70 years ago. As immigrants, they have a different culture than the dominant local culture because they have established businesses. Really, there's a sense that there's a bit more competitiveness actually around the, the group loan process. And so it's only amongst members of that group who know each other very well that actually have, have more cohesion. And in the Locker Mart area, these are women that where they've done more of their own startup or they, they have probably a bit more ownership in their enterprise. And there's a note also from the program manager that there's more social cohesion amongst those group members who are receiving loans. However, they have less experience in running the business than the group at New Market. I wonder, too, if your sense of the kind of level or degree of social capital that members of the two groups had or have were similar. It's interesting to me that as you framed the description of the group at New Market, that they were actually not originally from that area, though certainly if they've been in that area for 60 or 70 years, that's at least in an American context, that would be fairly well established. But apparently it's not in India. There is a cultural heritage that you take along with you that is very distinct. There's regional differences, there's food differences, there's interactional differences, nuances that get picked up if you're a local. And um, so, yes, they belong to the neighborhood, but they're not off the neighborhood. I was going to say, as Rebecca noted, they control prime real estate. That gives them some power. I think that they use that power effectively. And I know that there is also, I guess we would call it a gatekeeper. I don't understand politics at all. It's very, very important. Uh, maybe Rebecca could comment on that. So there's, you know, who do they know that's actually a government official or representative and a local council type thing? Um, but there's some very interesting layers. Uh, just sort of, if you think about it, Calcutta is in the state of West Bengal. And the state of West Bengal is known for being engaged in politics and poetry and literature. And so it's often sort of, um, as a regional cultural context, there is lots of civic engagement. So the discussions and dialogues are highly passionate if you are in that environment. And, and also understand for a long time, the state of West Bengal, and primarily in the Calcutta and its neighboring surrounding areas, have had a framework of operating much more from a community-based approach rather than a, a capitalistic approach of which you see 
compared to Bombay and Delhi and other major cities. And so politics is very much live in these neighborhoods, and they are at a much at the grassroots level. It's, it's geographic, it's local leadership, it's, and in some ways, um, I don't want to label, label it as quid pro quo, but there is social protections in such context because, you know, if, if people didn't feel empowered in a particular neighborhood, they would have been totally oust in there. So there's certainly a sense of political connections that, that are long and far-seated in that context. Sounds like these are in both locations. They're able to fulfill those core functions, if you will, of a community in terms of the social control and social support and mutual support and, and the sort of economic context as well. It sounds like the members of this who are getting the microcredit then have, and that's all relative, obviously, but relatively high uh, levels of social capital and that there are, they do have, at least some, have connections in which to, to draw resources and connections, as you say, with, with jobs that they've had in the past and work that they have done. And so they just expand that. Is that a sort of a correct interpretation? I would agree with that. Yeah, sure, certainly. But you have to understand that in, in its context, poverty is very real. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's truly relative to that situation, but the uh, participants in your in your study are able to to in some ways capitalize on that and then move forward with it, which is a really important contextual issue, I think. So, uh, it's it's very exciting to be able to I think to recognize that in people and then help them continue to foster that and create larger networks, if you will. Let me ask this, uh, what drew you to this work? Uh, because microcredit work is not the typical sort of social work. I wonder if you could speak to a little bit about what attracted this work to you. I think I'm not a, um, let's see, I have a, a background actually as Master's of Divinity and a psych degree and then a, a PhD in social welfare. So I, yeah, I'm not a traditional social worker. And But I think one of my frameworks or worldview is that poverty can be addressed. Many, many people have the resilience or would have the ability to solve a lot of the other problems. Um, and that's, I'm not necessarily talking about for persons who have physical or mental severe disabilities, but certainly just the understanding that, that poverty does create such inequality of resource and access and opportunities. There's a great deal of dignity if, if persons can engage in work and have an honest wage for that work. I think that's an ideal that all social workers aspire to, um, that is supporting dignity and, and really just looking at a, a macro level, that's structures that allow injustice or to continue is, is what I'm interested in. And so that's my interest in economic injustice. And also just a, I have, I think, a very high view of community grassroots. A lot of other research is around religious congregations or smaller nonprofit organizations uh, that are community-based. I think that they do tremendously difficult work, and I have such a great admiration for small and mid-sized nonprofits that are really committed to their mission. And so what I would like my work is to raise awareness about what organizations are doing, the funding that they need to do it. I think part of the reason why Jill and I can sort of work closely uh, together is I think I, we come from similar worldview of thinking. I definitely operate from a human rights 
and social justice framework. Like Joe, my undergraduate work was tied to looking at theology and sort of defining a vocation rather than a profession. So early on, my, my thinking has been really guided by, by, by the social justice human rights framework, along with peace studies and social work. And then my master's was in social work, and I've done a considerable amount of work tied to community development and community capacity building, uh, recognizing that, that people have the ability to engage in ways of earning an income to support themselves and for their families. I definitely operate from a macro perspective, and so I see a close linkage between social work involved in all levels of how we live and plan our lives, and that social workers need to be involved with the individual, with the with groups, with communities, with families, and uh, you know, policy. I think I think we play a critical role in how there's dispute of justice, and so that's sort of my my frame of how I work and operate. Thank you for that. I absolutely agree. It's in some ways it is about that the flutter of the butterfly creating a a wind that spans the entire world, and that what happens in Kol Kol A Kata is that how you how you said it, Rebecca? The uh, impacts us here, and because the world continues to get very small, I wonder if you could speak a little bit more too um, about the uh, the role of social work in the work that you're doing in India, and whether or not there are Indian social workers that you work with or or not. I think social work in India, social work's got an old history in India. You know, you have. And, and a lot of sort of social work is, is done in community context. So it's a lot of organizing. It's a lot of sort of um, mobilizing and linking. Social work operates very much from that premise. Uh, but the individual interactions happen in groups or in environments where services are rendered. And we don't particularly have a systematic social welfare state. Nonprofits and, and religious institutions play a critical role in poverty alleviation in India itself. Our work, this NGO that we've had a long history, is very central to an important um, work that they do in Kolikata, especially. Certainly, they are known nationwide. This organization is established in the heart of the city that has a passion for the city and is very committed. Now, they might not have traditional social workers, but they are very much community organizers doing community work in neighborhoods that are culturally appropriate. What can we as social workers do as connections? I think they like the partnerships. They like the, you know, sometimes when you're so busy doing the work that you don't take time to sort of reflect on the good work you are doing. So I think the role of evaluation, the role of a much more streamlined providing services, I think sort of creating databases and mechanisms for reporting, which would augment more of leveraging dollars to the organization itself. So I think those kinds of of work, I think providing internships, providing sort of uh, meaningful exchange, because there's lots that we can learn from the organization. They're doing real vital, important work in in a way that's uh, compassionate and just. Jill, did you want to add anything? 
I love this quote. I'm reading from our a PowerPoint that Rebecca and I used. And um, so one of the bullets, I'm sure Rebecca wrote this, but it just said, communities which foster caring enable organized action. And so, and I note about, there's so many ways that if a person, thinking from a very pragmatic level, if there were social, there are social workers working with the organization, but even whether they were from that context or internationally, some of the deep concerns would be just really educating women about hygiene, nutrition, health. As Rebecca said, there's not a systematic welfare state. So things like access to medical care, paying for medicines, sanitation, hygiene, simple things, cleanliness, as well as issues around literacy or education. Support in those areas would be welcomed, I think, by various different NGOs or organizations working working with the very poor. And also, I think, um, but more, again, my I'm not clinically trained person, so thinking more at an organizational level and a macro, a system-wide level, as well as supporting community organizing or community action that is locally based. There's a need for microcredit. There was a, re- a wonderful report written co- that was called No Footsteps to Follow. And one of the identified, one of the things that they identified was it just really a need for training for persons who are coming up they, just at the supervisory level, but in terms of persons who are actually managing the programs, who are actually going out and visiting sites and working directly with loan recipients. There's a great need for really mid-level managers in the industry and for training and for evaluation then. And I think a, a great deal of need for a transparency in the process to have an ability to, to watchdog or to find when unjust practices are taking place. So I think those are also areas that not only advocacy, but uh, training and evaluation for social workers who have an interest or, or uh, MPAs as well. I wonder, before we close, perhaps you could say a little bit about if there was anything that surprised you about the work that you did there or what you found, something that you hadn't really expected or maybe hoped to expect but wasn't sure you were going to get. This is not a surprise necessarily, but just the greatest joy is just looking at People are so thankful, but the context is so different. And people are, are in no way, I don't mean to say that people are naive or simplistic in any way, but loan recipients are truly grateful. And their smiles and their excitement and their idea that they have, their optimism that somebody's giving them a chance. It's not that, they're, it's not that they didn't have that urge to better themselves, to better their families, to do something. And so they get so excited at at thinking about how they could do that if they just had a little bit of money. And it's just, it's really fun. It's really, really fun. And so having the opportunity to visit with women or with their families at their place of business or when they come in uh, to meet with the program manager has just been, it's humbling and it's a real joy as well. So that's the most fun part. For me, sort of having grown up in Calcutta and familiar with the signs and the sounds, the element of surprise, just huge housing in an area where I, I was totally familiar with and yet was not familiar. And so to be have access to to a world, you know, that is very organized and systematized and people are, are living in ways that are both joyful and hard. Uh, like Jill, I I think the, the program sort of allows for great enthusiasm and opportun and opportunities too. You know, and still we can't be naive without sort of thinking there 
might be room for different kinds of exploitation, but we have to sort of believe that what we're doing is meaningful and that um, it's, it's exciting and it has all kinds of, of opportunities, I think, for real meaningful partnership. Well, thank you so much for sharing your work and best of luck to you. Thank you, thank you so much, Dr. Tim. You've been listening to Drs. Rebecca Thomas and Jill Whitmer-Singha discuss the role of microcredit and social entrepreneurship in bridging the economic divide among women in Kolkata, India. Thanks for listening, and join us again next time for more lectures and conversations on social work practice and research. Hi, I'm Nancy Smith, Professor and Dean at the University at Buffalo School of Social Work. Thanks for listening to our podcast. For more information about who we are, our history, our programs, and what we do, we invite you to visit our website at www.socialwork.buffalo.edu. At UB, we are living proof that social work makes a difference in people's lives.